0: From PRI Public Radio International. From PRI Public From Radio. Radio PRI Public, Public,
1: Public Radio. Public Radio. Public Radio International. International. One more time. From WBEZ Chicago, it's This American Life. Well, it was... Danielle's cousin Lynn who said it best. She said that Danielle and I had put ourselves into the kind of situation that 1,000 comedies had been built on. Situation comedies. Screwball comedies. Every kind of TV, theater, movie, drama thing. We, We had done that. We had done that to ourselves. And how did we not... How did we not know? Here we were. Danielle and I. We used to be involved. And it was our first time together as just friends. Just friends. Just friends. (laughs) You know you're, you're in trouble when the word just appears in front of the word friend. I mean, it's almost hard to think of a context where those two words are used together. A sentence constructed... Unless using the word just in some radically different way, like, I think the just, I think the verdict was just. Friends may disagree. Like, if there's, you know, if they have nothing to do with each other, maybe, maybe it's okay. But, 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 but. Because, because automatically, you know, it implies a negotiation's happening. Just friends. Friends. Friends is like a state of being. Friends is like, you know, there's a road, there are houses, people are friends, you know? so when you put just in front of it, it su- suggests the imbalance. And that's where you get the screwball comedy aspect. All right, I'm going to try to keep the mundane personal information to a, a minimum here so we can focus on the bigger universal truths this story may offer. Briefly, some, some facts, though. Okay, Danielle and I have been broken up for half a year. And she lived in New York City, I lived in Chicago, and we talked on the phone several times a week. In other words, that kind of um, weird post-relationship situation where, you know, there's no more sex, but you sort of depend on each other for all your emotional needs. So, you, you know, kind of all the work of the relationship, but none of the sheer physical pleasure. That's kind of, that was our thing. Anyway, so two days before I came to New York City to visit friends there, real friends, Not just friends, just normal friends. And Danielle. She informs me that there's a guy that she had started dating. I like him, she said. I really like him. And then, two days later, I found myself in New York City. And, um... You know your wish in this kind of situation is you want a sense of okay we're gonna be friends it's gonna be okay we're gonna see how this new thing between us feels and um we're trying to hang out and be buddies you know and that's how we ended up in Saks Fifth Avenue where the first moment of our screwball comedy weekend occurred so you know we're walking through that big cold Ford Fifth Avenue store and the mannequins everywhere and Anne Klein and Anne Klein 2 and Anne Klein Contemporaries. There are actually three different Anne Klein departments at Saks Fifth Avenue and all the other designers. And it wasn't too crowded and it wasn't too empty and she was walking ahead of me. Just a step or two ahead of me. Never quite meeting my eye oh that's why this has been for like an hour or two isn't it when we're walking up the street it was like that she wasn't quite meeting my eye. she wasn't quite talking to me it's like she's holding a certain um emotional distance and that's the thing that gets to you it's not the big picture no we're not together no we have no future together it's the little picture be my eyes anymore and in each of our histories of love who has not played both parts in this drama you know both parts who hasn't been both people in this picture at one time or another the person walking a little briskly ahead not meeting the eye of the other person And the person walking behind, you know, a little over-eager, a little extra edge of anxiousness, wanting to make the connection, a little bit like an eager puppy. The other person ahead, a little bit put off by the yapping (laughs) of this puppy, no matter how subtle and dignified and, and, and interesting. (laughs) <laughs> that yapping happens to be just kind of not wanting to just deal with this not wanting to face this situation walking ahead about three paces who has not, who among us has not been uh, on both sides of that so she's looking for clothes and she has this new guy she's saying, and she's carrying the clothes and we're looking for a dressing room and we find a dressing room and we stand outside the dressing room. <laughs> and it's, it's an automatic <laughs> setup situation. Do, do I come into this dressing room and watch you try it? She's like, I want to you to see these clothes. Okay. Do I come into the dressing room? There's something inherently odd and awkward about not coming in. Because, I mean, what, you know, what, what is in there that I have not seen before? But there's something um, inherently awkward about coming in as well. You know, because things have changed either way, there's a there's a problem. So we stood there in the door on <laughs> the door of this dressing room and and composed the orbits that were riding against each other, right? we We looked at the two little orbits and decided, okay, I'll go in and she takes off her clothes and tries on these clothes and the clothes she has gotten are the following there's a little lacy clingy sort of stretch top of black kind of like a black lace thing you know that you would wear um, maybe a jacket over to cover your nipples and uh so she's got that on and she's got this little mini skirt. And while we've been walking around Saks, she's been saying, "You know, I've got to find a mini skirt. I really need a black mini skirt." She just switched jobs, and um, so she's trying on this miniskirt. And it's, it's. She's looking very cute. She's looking adorable, you know. And um, and suddenly she's trying on the miniskirt. skirt. So we say, "Honey, you know, I, you have a mini skirt. You have that that black um pleated miniskirt. I've seen you in that miniskirt a million times. She says, no, 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 no. No, no. I don't... That one, that miniskirt comes down to here. And she indicates a spot maybe an inch above her knee. I need a miniskirt that's, that's a lot shorter. I need it to come to here. She indicates a spot maybe, I don't know, six inches, eight inches above her knee? Six inches? A lot higher. And there's a pause. And she looks at me and says, well, I wouldn't wear this to work. So I start to think to myself <laughs> what am I doing here? <laughs> who who are these clothes for? And I picture um the guy who she's going out with. And I picture pretty much him looking at the clothes, her trying to look cute in the clothes, her looking very cute in the clothes. I pretty much Pretty much, kind of picture everything you can kind of picture. <laughs> and um, I sit. I'm sitting down on the chair. There's a little chair in the dressing room. And um, so there's Danielle, looking adorable in her little clothes, and kind of absorbed in looking at it this way and that. And I'm going to try to describe the gesture that occurs next. Imagine uh, me a. Tallish sort of guy, slumped in this chair, sort of leaning back in this chair in this dressing room. And I, and I hope I can convey this over the radio. What the motion she does next? I had been feeling like she kind of wasn't seeing me. You know, when we were walking around the store. I felt a little bit ignored, like not seen. And I'm sitting in the dressing room, thinking, you know, I, I should really leave this dressing room. I don't really need to see this right now. And just as I'm thinking this thought, she takes off the mini skirt. And she just kind of tosses it onto the chair, as if it were an empty chair. But in fact, I'm sitting on it. So she just tosses the skirt onto me. And suddenly she looks up and in horror, actually, I have to say, to her credit, in actual horror, and sees the skirt kind of sitting on my chest because I'm slumped backwards. And so so there's this sort of semi-horizontal surface and this skirt is now sitting on my chest looking um ridiculous. And suddenly she realizes exactly what she's done. And she says to me, she says to me, Oh, no. You're going to talk about this on your radio show, aren't you? Well, of course, this is my radio show. It's this American Life, Amira Glass. And by the way, I did get Danielle's permission to talk about this on the radio. Otherwise I would not be here talking about it with you today. Each week in our program, of course, we choose a theme. Today's theme is Get Over It. We bring you three stories of people who have a hard time letting go of the past. Act one of our program, the act we're in right now, is nonfiction. Act two is fiction. Act three is a little documentary. And I bring up what happened between me and Danielle because I think that she and I um, stumbled upon a few things that happen universally in the get over it situation. For, for one thing, one of the most delicate aspects of this situation is um, how much information do you want about your ex-girlfriend's new boyfriend, you know, or your ex-whatever's, you know, new whatever. My friend um, Julie told me a story in warning. That went as follows. She had hungrily devoured every piece of information she could get about one of her ex-boyfriends' new girlfriends. And at one point he told her that the girl had a dog. And somehow... That detail made Julie crazy. It made her feel like, oh my God, this is a person with her life worked out completely. This is a person whose life is so much better than mine. This this person has a dog, which means that they have a life that can surround a dog. And the fact that they have a dog means that they're a person capable of love. And it means that they're a person in a stable situation with a home where they can have a dog. And And suddenly everything came into question about him and her and the girl and... I wanted to avoid that but I wanted information <laughs> and I don't know exactly why but it was there was a powerful herd of stampeding horses within me wanting information and and I found myself asking questions and I I know listen very carefully to these questions listen very carefully Ira because whatever it is that you're asking will indicate something about yourself. And the order you ask them will indicate something. You can learn something here. And I listened at this, I said to myself, okay, how old is he? And he's 28. And, it, okay, that one made sense. It, kind of the age difference between Danielle and I had been kind of a big issue, and so I was trying to gauge kind of where this new guy fit into the geography of that old familiar landscape. See, that's part of what this is about. You know, you have this, this map of an emotional city that you've built with another person and you want to figure out, well, where are they on the map now, you know? So, my second question was going to be, so what's he do? What's he do for a living? Like, you know, but you know how every now and then you'll read an article or somebody at a party will say, you know, isn't it shallow? They'll say, isn't it shallow? Isn't it shallow that when people want to know about other people, the first question they ask is, what do they do for a living? Isn't isn't that so shallow? Doesn't that indicate what a shallow group of people we are? And I thought, you know, I don't want to fall into that trap. You know, I don't want to fall into that trap of just equating people with, with, with their jobs. You know, you don't want to think we are our jobs. You know, that's just a shallow so I, so I sort of thing. So I sidestepped that question and came up with another question. The question I found myself asking, I don't know where this came from, was, is he a Jew? I've been to services, what, once in the last 15 years? <laughs> is he a Jew? I think what I meant by it was, um... Is, it, you know, is he a member of my tribe? Is he like me? Is he like me, honey? Honey? You're seeing somebody else. Is he like me? He must be like me if you're seeing him, right? The only person you could be interested in is me... So he must be like me. Uh, he, He was not a Jew. Now, I would like to tell you, beloved radio listener, that this phase of jealousy and competitiveness passed quickly on my part. I move with grace and ease into the world of just friends. I would like to say that. But, you know, one of the rules of getting over it, in fact, maybe the main rule of getting over it, is that you cannot choose the time and place. You know, you cannot will it to happen. You cannot think, okay, now, I have the right attitude right now. I'm over it. I'm ready. I'm over it. And it's now. It's like, um, well, it's like like when Jesus returns. I say this to you as a Jew. It's like when Jesus returns, you know, none will know the exact day or hour. It can come like a thief in the night, the getting over it. Well, coming up in, in just a little bit, another story of somebody trying to get over it, trying to will himself to get over it with exactly as much success as you would expect anybody to have when you're
2: you fly, you wink and feel so
3: chipper. The moon is a yarmulke high in the sky.
4: And each day is Yom Kippur. <laughs>
1: Act 2, Wishing for Amnesia.
4: But
1: well, this next story of someone unable to get over it comes from George Saunders, his amazing and sad and funny book, Civil Warland in Bad Decline. This story is called Offloading for Mrs. Schwartz.
2: Elizabeth always thought the fake stream running through our complex was tacky. Whenever I'd sit brooding beside it after one of our fights, he'd hoot down at me from the balcony. Then I'd come in and we'd make up. Oh would we? I think of it. I think of it and think of it. Finally in despair I called Guilt Masters. Guilt Masters are Jean and Bob Fleen, a brother-sister psychiatric practice. In their late-night TV ads, they wear cowls and capes and stand on either side of a sobbing neurotic woman in sweater and slacks. By the end of the bit, she's romping through a field of daisies. I get Jean fleen. I tell her I've done a bad thing I can't live with. She says I've called the right place. She says there's nothing so shameful it can't be addressed by guilt masters. I take a deep breath and spill my guts. There's a silence from Jean's end. Then she asks, can I hold? Upbeat Muzak comes on. Several minutes later, Bob comes on and asks can they call me back. I wait by the phone. One hour, two hours, all night. Nothing. The sun comes up. Brad from Complex Grounds turns on the bubbler and the white water begins to flow. I don't shower, I don't shave, I put on the same pants I had on before. It's too much. Three years since her death and still I'm a wreck. I think of fleeing the city. I think of working on a shrimp or setting myself on fire downtown. Instead I go to work. In spite of my problems, personal interactive holography marches on. All morning I hopefully dust. Nobody comes in. At noon I work out a little tension by running amok in one of my modules. I choose bowling with the pros. A holographic smoothie in a blazer greets me and affably asks if I'm as tired as he is of perennially overhooking the ball, when what I really need is to consistently throw strikes. I tell him piss off. In a more sophisticated module he'd ask why the hostility, but my equipment's outdated and instead he looks confused and tries to shake my hand. What crappy verisimilitude, no wonder I'm in the red, no wonder my rent's overdue. He asks, isn't bowling a lovely recreation? I tell him I'm in mourning. He says the hours spent in the bowling alley with friends certainly make for some fantastic memories years down the line. I tell him my life's in the crapper. He grins and says, let's bowl, let's go in and bowl, let's go in and bowl a few frames with the pros. I take him by the throat. Of course he dysfunctions. Of course I'm automatically unbooted. I doff my headset and dismount the treadmill. Once again it's just me and my failing shop. Once again the air reeks of microwave popcorn once again I am only who I am (music) wonderful I think you filed your own four hundred dollar module and I have so I trash it I write it off to grief management and go to lunch I opt for an auto dispensed freight furter of course I Over microwave and the paper cow catcher melds with the bun and the little engineer's face runs down his overalls. It's even more inedible than usual. I chuck it. I can't afford another. I chuck it and go wait for my regulars. At two, Mr. Baumfield comes in looking guilty and, as always, requests violated prom queen. Then puts on high heels and selects Treadmill 3. Treadmill 3 is behind a beam, so he's free to get as worked up as he likes, which is very. I try not to hear him moan. I try not to hear him call each football team member by name. He's followed by Theo Kiley, an appliance salesman who lays down a ream of frigid air specs and asks for legendary American killer stock U. I strap on his headset. I insert his module. For 20 minutes, he hems and haws with Clyde Barrow. Finally he slips up and succumbs to a burst of machine gun fire, then treats himself to a sprite. Phew, he says, next time I'll know to avoid the topic of his mom. I remind him he's got an outstanding bill. He says thanks. He says his bill and his ability to match wits with great criminals are the only outstanding things he's got. We laugh, we laugh some more. He shakes his head and leaves. I curse him under my breath and close up early and return to my lonely home. Next day, Mrs. Gaither from corporate comes to town. Midway through my significant accomplishments assessment, armless Mr. Feltriggi comes to the door and, as usual, rings the bell with his face. I let him in and he unloads his tote bag of cookbooks for sale. Today it's crazy Cajun carnival and going bananas with bananas, a Caribbean primer, but I know what he really wants. With my eyes, I tell him, wait. Finally Gaither finishes raking my subpar disbursement ledger over the coals and goes across the mall to Oh My God for some vintage religious statuary. I slip the headset on Feltrigi and run Youth Roam's Kansas Hometown 1932. It's all homemade bread and dirt roads and affable dog catchers. What a sweet grin appears. He greets each hometowner with his ghost limbs and beams at the chirping of the holographic birds. He kneels a while in Mrs. Lawler's larder, sniffing spices that remind him of his mother, elbow-deep in flour. He drifts out to the shaded yard and discusses fascism with the Iceman near some swaying wheat. His posture changes for the better. He laughs aloud. He's young again, and the thresher is yet to claim his arms. Gaither comes back with a St. Sebastian cookie jar. I nudge Feltrigi and tell him that's all for today. I take off his headset, and he offers me a cookbook in payment. I tell him forget it. I tell him that's what friends are for. It's seventy bucks a session and he knows it. He rams his head into my chest as a sign of affection. That type of a present surely acts to deflate revenues, Gaither says primly as Feltriggi goes out. No lie, I say, that's why I nearly beat him up every time he comes in here. I'm not sure that's appropriate, she says. Me neither, I say, that's why I usually don't really do it. I see, she says. Let's talk briefly about personal tragedy. No one's immune, but at what point must mourning cease? In your case, apparently never. I think you never saw Elizabeth lanky and tan and laughing in Napa. I like your cookie jar, I say. Very well, she says. Seal your own doom. She says she's shocked at the dryness of my treadmill bearings and asks if I've ever heard of oil. She sighs and gives me her number at the Quality Inn in case I think of anything that might argue against franchise agreement cancellation. Then out she goes, sadly shaking her head. It's only my livelihood. It's only every cent Elizabeth left me. I load up my mobile pack, I select my happiest modules, then I go off to my real job, my penance, my albatross. Rocket Town's our ghetto. It's called Rocket Town because long ago they put up a building there in which to build rockets, but none were built and The building's now nothing, which is what it's always been, except for a fenced-off dank corner that was once used to store dilapidated fire plugs and is now a filthy daycare for the children of parents who could care less. All around Rocket Town, little houses went up when it was thought the building would soon be full of people making rockets and hauling down impressive wages. They're bad little houses, put up quick, and now all the people who were young and had hoped to build rockets are old and doddering and walk by the empty building mumbling, Why, why, why? In the early days of my grief, Father Luther told me to lose myself in service by contacting Elder Aid Incorporated. I got Mrs. Ken Schwartz. Mrs. Ken Schwartz lives in Rockettown. She lives in Rockettown remembering Mr. Ken Schwartz and cursing him for staying so late at Menlo's Ten Pin, on nights when she forgets he's been dead eighteen years. Mrs. Ken Schwartz likes me in my happy modules, especially she likes Viennese Waltz. Boy does she. She's bedridden and lonely and sometimes in her excitement bruises her arms on her headboard when the orchestra starts to play. Tonight she says she's feeling weak. She says she used to be a different person and wishes she could go back to the days when she was loved. She mourns Fat Patrice and their jovial games of old maid. She mourns the front yard oak the city felled without asking her. Mostly she mourns Mr. Ken Schwartz. I pull out all the stops. I set color on high contrast. I tape sensors to her lips and earlobes, and I activate the royalty subroutine. Soon the prince is lavishing her with praise. Soon they're sneaking off from the ball for some tender words and a kiss or two on a stone bench beside the Danube. Soon I'm daubing her eyes with tissue while she weeps at the beauty of the fishermen bowing from their little boats as they realize it's the prince himself trying to retrieve her corsage from the river. I make tea, I read my magazine, Finally, I stroke her forehead while humming Strauss and slowly fading the volume. You, she says, smiling sweetly when she's all the way back, you're too good to me. No one could be too good to you, I say. Oh, you, she says, you're a saint. No, I think I'm a man without a life due to you. Then I feel ashamed and purposely bash my shin against the bed frame while tucking her in. I gather some juice, I check her back door lock. All around the room are dirty plates I've failed to get to the sink and old photos of Mr. Ken Schwartz assessing the condition of massive steam boilers while laughing confidently. Out on the street it's cold, and a wino standing in a dumpster calling a stray cat Uncle Chuck. I hustle directly to my Omni, fearing for my gear. I drive through frightening quarters of the city, nervously toggling my defrost lever, thinking of Mrs. Schwartz the last few months she's gone downhill she's unable to feed herself or autonomously use the bathroom talk about losing yourself in service to a greater extent than planned she needs a living but they don't come cheap and my shop hasn't turned a profit in months what to do i think and think i think so much i lose track of where i am and blunder by the spot you fool i think you ask how much additional pain would you like here a drunk named Tom Clifton brought his coupe de ville onto the sidewalk as Elizabeth shop for fruit on the evening of a day when we fought like hell. On the evening of a day when I'd called her an awful name. What name? I can't say the word. I even think it in my gut burns. I'm a saint. The fight started when I accused her of flirting with our neighbor, Len Cobb, by bending low on purpose. I was angry and implied that she couldn't keep her boobs in her top to save her life. If I could see her one last time, I'd say, Thanks very much for dying at the worst possible moment and leaving me holding the bag of guilt. I'd say, if you had to die, couldn't you have done it when we were getting along? I madly flee the spot. There are boat lights in the harbor and a man in a tux, inexplicably jogging through the park. There's a moon bobbing up between condemned buildings. There's the fact that tomorrow I'm lay authority guest at the Lyndon Baines Johnson School for Precocious Youth. I'm slated to allow interested kids to experience the module entitled Hop-Hop the Bunny masters fractions. Frankly, I fear I'll be sneered at. How interested could a mob of gifted kids be in a rabbit and a lisping caterpillar grouping acorns ad nauseum? But I've promised a principal, Mrs. Briff, and I'm not in a position to decline any revenue source. So an hour of the night when other men my age are rising from their beds to comfort screaming
1: newborns, I return to the mall for my Hop-Hop module. More of George Saunders' story, off-witting for Mrs. Schwartz, in a minute when our program continues. This is American Life. I'm Ira Glass. Each week on our program we choose a theme and invite a variety of writers, performers, and documentary producers to tackle that theme. Today's theme, Get Over It. We continue now with George Saunders' story of a man who has not gotten over the death of his wife. It's late at night. He's stopping back at work to pick up modules of Hip Hop the Bunny Master's Fractions to take to the School for Precocious Youth the next morning. I use my passkey.
2: Something's strange. Modules are strewn everywhere. The cash box sits on the fax machine. One of my treadmills lies on its side. How's all this fancy equipment used? Someone asked from behind me, pressing a sharp knife to my throat. More specifically, which of it is worth the most? Remember, sir, you're answering for your life. He sounds old, but feels strong. I tell him it's hard to explain, I offer to demonstrate. He says do so, but slowly. I fit him with a headset, I gently guide him to a treadmill, then run, sexy nurses scrub you down. Immediately, his lips get moist, loosens his grip on the knife, and I'm able to cold cock him with the FedEx tape gun. He drops drooling to my nice carpet. A man his age should be a doting grandfather, not a crook threatening me with death. I feel violated. How does someone come to this? I strap him down and set my console for skin. It seems his lousy name is Hank. I hear his portly father calling it out across a cranberry bog. I know the smell of his first baseball cap. Through his eyes I see the secret place under the porch where he hid whenever his fat kissing aunt came. Later I develop a love for Swing. It seems he was a Marine at Iwo who on his way to boot camp saw the aging Thai Cobb at a depot. I sense his panic on the troop transport and quickly doff my headset as he hits the beach and the bullets start to fly. To my horror, I see that his eyelids are fluttering and his face is contorting. My God, I think this is no scan. This is a damn offload. I check the console and, sure enough, feel one incorrect switch setting. I've just irrevocably transferred a good third of his memories to my hard drive. He comes to and hops off the table looking years younger, suddenly happy-go-lucky, asks where he is and trots blithely out the door, Free now of boot camp, free of Ewo, free of all memory of youthful slaughter, free, in fact, of any memory at all of the first 20 years of his life. I'm heart-sick. What have I done? On the other hand, it stopped him from getting up and trying to kill me. On the other hand, it appears he left her a happier man, perhaps less inclined to felony.
0: <music>
2: I grab my Hop-Hop module. On the cover is Hop-Hop enthusiastically giving the thumbs up to an idealized blonde boy lifting an enormous four into a numerator. As if being rodborn enough, first thing tomorrow morning a room full of genius kids is going to eat me alive. Then crossing the deserted food court I get a brainstorm. I hustle back to the shop and edit out Hank's tryst with starving women in depression-era hobo camps and his one homo fling with his cousin Julian. I edit the profanity out of Ewo. I added out the midnight wanks, the petty thefts, the unkind words, all but the most inoffensive of the bodies of his buddies on the pale sand beach. Next morning I heard kid after kid behind my white curtain and let them experience Hank's life. They love it. They leave jabbering knowledgeably about the Pacific Theater and the ultimate wisdom of using the bomb. They leave praising Phil Rizzuto's fielding and cursing their brown shirts. They pat old Mr. Panchuco, the geriatric janitor on the back, and ask him what caliber machine gun he operated at the Bulge. He stands scratching his gut, stunned, trying to remember. The little Clotchko twins jitterbug. Andy Pitlin, all of three feet tall, hankers aloud for a camel. Mrs. Briff is more than impressed. She asks what else I have. I ask what else does she want. She says, for starters, how about the remainder of the century? I tell her I'll see what I can do. Kids come out of it with a first-hand warrior's experience, and I come out of it with a check for $500, enough to hire a temporary living for Mrs. Ken Schwartz, which I gladly do. A lovely Eurasian named Wei, a student of astrophysics, who, as I'm leaving them alone for the first time, is brushing out Mrs. Ken Schwartz's hair and humming, let me call you sweetheart. Will you stay forever, I ask her? With all due respect, she replies, I will stay as long as you can pay me. Two weeks later, Briff's on my tail for more modules and weighs on my tail for her pay. I tell Mrs. Ken Schwartz all during one of her fifteen minute windows of lucidity. When lucid, she's shrewd and bright. She understands her predicament. She understands the limitations of my gear. She understands that I can't borrow her memories, only take them away forever. She says she can live without the sixties. I haul my stuff over to her place and take what I need. I edit out her mastectomy, Ken Schwartz's midlife crisis and resulting trip to Florida, and her constant drinking in his absence. I stick to her walking past a protest and counseling a skinny girl on acid to stay in school. It's not great, but I've got a deadline. I call it America in Tumult. The older generation looks on in dismay. I have it couriered over to Briff dreading her response, but to my amazement she sends a cash bonus. She reports astounding increases in grandparental bonding. She reports kids identifying a Mercury Cougar with no prompting and disgustedly calling each other Nixon whenever a trust is betrayed. Thereafter, I retain way on a weekly basis by whittling away at Mrs. Schwartz's memories. I submit Pearl Harbor week prior to infamy. I submit The Day the Music Died, Buddy Holly Remembered, which, unfortunately, is merely Mrs. Schwartz hearing the news on a pink radio, then disinterestedly going back to cleaning her oven. Finally, briff calls hacked off. She says she wants some real meat. She asks, how about the entire 20 a personal favorite of hers. She's talking flappers. She's talking possible insights on prohibition. I stonewall. I tell her, give me a few days to exhaustively check my massive archive. I call Mrs. Ken Schwartz. She says during the twenties she was a lowly phone operator in Pekin, Illinois. She sounds disoriented and wearily asks where her breasts are. Clearly this has gone far enough. I call Briff and tell her no more modules. She ups her offer to 3000 a decade. She's running for school board and says my modules are the primary arrow in her quiver. But what am I supposed to do? Turn Mrs. Schwartz into a well-cared-for blank slate? Start kidnapping and offloading strangers? I say a little prayer. God, I botched this life, but good. I failed you in all major ways. You gave me true love, and I blew it. I'm nothing, but what have you got against Mrs. Ken Schwartz? Forgive me. Help me figure this out. And then in a flash, I figure it out. I lock the shop on the spine of a blank module I write 1951-1992 baby boomers come into their own at 3,000 a decade that's 12 grand I address an envelope to Briff and enclose an invoice I write out some instructions and rig myself up memories shmemories I think I'll get some new ones these old ones give me no peace then I let it rip. It all goes whizzing by, Anthony Newberg smacking me, Mom on the dock, an Agnew Halloween mask at a frat house, Bev Malloy struggling with my belt, the many seasons, the many flags, dogs, paths, the many stars and skies of many hues my sweet Elizabeth. Holding hands, we gape at an elk in Estes Park. On our knees in a bed of tulips, I kiss her cheek. The cold clear water of Nacogdoches, the birthday banner she made of scarves in our little place on Ellington, the awful look on her face as I called her what I called her, her hair trailing fine and light behind her as she stormed out to buy fruit, the grave, the grave, my sad attempt to become a franchisee, and I'm a paunchy guy in a room with a note pinned to his sleeve. You were alone in the world, it says, and did a kindness for someone in need. Good for you. Now post this module and follow this map to the home of Mrs. Ken Schwartz. Care for her with some big money that will come in the mail. Find someone to love. Your heart has never been broken. You've never done anything unforgivable or hurt anyone beyond reparation. Everyone you've ever loved, you've treated like gold.
1: George Sanders' story is from his book, Civil War Land and Bad Decline. He teaches at Syracuse University. Amnesia. Who among us wanting to get over it has not wanted amnesia? But you know, one thing about amnesia, one frustrating thing, is that it seems to happen a lot more in television and movies and novels than it ever does in real life. I hear uh, an article from uh, Romantic Times Magazine, April of 1996. They list here 40 different romance novels that are on the shelves now where amnesia is the plotline. But does it really happen? Have you ever met anybody who it happens to? Well, we asked reporter Scott Carrier in Salt Lake City to find out if it does really happen.
5: The idea was to find someone who had amnesia and ask them what it was like in real life. I was warned that it might be difficult to locate such a person, that the affliction may in reality be quite rare, but that there was at least one known amnesiac living in Tennessee and another in Pennsylvania the particular cities and addresses could be found if necessary. Nonsense, I said. I'm surrounded by amnesiacs. This city breeds forgetfulness. There must be five or six amnesiacs in the neighborhood around my office alone. I accepted the offer, thinking it would be an easy assignment. I began by asking everybody I saw if they had or had ever had amnesia. I did this for three days, and I tried not to be selective, but to ask everybody with whom I came into contact, whether my wife or the checker at the grocery store, do you have or have you ever had amnesia? And furthermore, I'd ask this each and every time I saw the person, sometimes two or three times a day. No one admitted to currently having amnesia, but at least one in four remembered being knocked hard on the head and losing memory from a concussion. This kind of amnesia lasts only a few minutes or a few hours, and concussion stories, I found out, are usually not worth listening to or worth telling. They usually go something like this. I was in a football game, and two guys fell on my head. I kept playing. I played the whole game and everything. But then after the game, I had to get a ride home because I didn't remember where I lived. I heard this story three times from the same person, and each time he told it to me in the same way with some difficulty as if something had been taken from him and he didn't know what it was. Two people admitted to suffering from drug-induced amnesia. One had a drinking problem, the other was myself, as due to the fact that when I was 19 I ate a big psilocybin mushroom right off the ground in the mountains of Columbia, South America and spent four or five hours where I didn't know my name where I was, or why. I was hallucinating wildly, the sky exploding, the ground bubbling up under my feet, the trees and bushes were throwing off little packets of flame and brightly colored orbs. I wandered around and around in a cow pasture, holding my hands over my eyes, delirious. And then a man in a jeep picked me up, and I thought he might be my father, and I thought I knew what he was saying, but I didn't know what language he was speaking. And we went to his house and watched a soccer game on television while his wife who I thought might be my mother, served us coffee from a metal tray. And then I was back out on the road, and I walked up to a park and sat down and drew a picture of myself in a notebook. And below the picture, I wrote these words, I'm still here. If this gave me any insights into what amnesia is like, real amnesia, I don't remember what they are. Three days, the closest I came to finding someone with amnesia was through a young woman who's the daughter of a friend of mine. She's a physical therapist, and one of her patients had had her head smashed in a car accident. Her amnesia is kind of the opposite of what we normally think about. She can remember things in the distant past just fine, but she doesn't seem to be able to remember what just happened, or what she was just thinking, or just where it was she was going. So she can't, for instance, drive a car or even ride a bus. I asked my friend's daughter if I might be able to talk with this woman, and she said, Well, I guess so, but you might have a better conversation with her dog. I came back to my office feeling a little down. Finding an amnesiac was proving to be more difficult than expected. I decided to seek professional help. I got up out of my chair and walked across the hallway and knocked on the door of Dr. Jeff Harris, psychologist.
3: I think there was a guy that went through it when I was in Vietnam. He ended up in some serious action and ended up going from one APC to the next and each one got blown up as he was getting in. Inter- I don't know exactly how he survived the whole thing, but the, we're talking about a platooner basically getting wiped out, he being one of the few survivors, and he couldn't remember. He couldn't remember. His past, he can remember where he was going. You know, that's the classical Freudian theory of repression. Mm. We don't remember things that make us feel guilty. Mm. Or feel pain.
5: All right, let me ask you this. Say I have the ability to make you have amnesia if I flip this switch you won't remember your name you won't remember who you are what do you think? what do I think? yeah, would you do it or not?
3: <laughs> would you? <laughs>
5: uh, I would want to do it because then I think that I would lose my ego I would lose this, I would have a clean slate sort of thing
3: and it would if all of a sudden you sat here and you can remember why you're holding this microphone or who I am or why you're talking to me. Uh, to say it was disoriented would be that would be too mild.
5: I think if I would be smart enough to realize this is a gift,
3: I mean there's two choices, either you realize that it's a, like a gift or you completely freak out one or the other. You're talking as if you know you wake up in the morning you don 't know where you are, who you are, where in the hell you're going, and you're happy with it. give me a goddamn break
5: that still seems attractive to me it still seems like it might be a good thing to be to be put in a situation where I have to admit that I'm completely
3: lost it seems like uh... oh, I think you already are
5: After five days, having found no one who had or had had amnesia, I decided to visit a hypnotherapist, Diane Bradshaw, and ask her if she could give me amnesia. She said she probably could do it as long as I was willing to be put under hypnosis. She said some people just weren't willing.
0: And if you're open to the possibility that, say, amnesia would be okay for five minutes or one minute, it might happen
5: well I th- I'm up I'm open to even a day if that's would that be a, a bad idea
0: what do you really want here do you want to get that extreme
5: well, let's say a few hours anyway do you think or, what do you think because he he's gonna have to hang out you with
0: know me. what I think I, I think an
5: hour I think hour. if you had
0: a half hour of amnesia right. no, no, no. you would you would get it pretty quick
5: okay all right an hour half hour
0: I think a half hour would probably be plenty of time now and then I have to ask you what do you want to forget I mean, I can do anything from giving you a suggestion to forget your name, to forget where you live, to, you know, what do you want to forget?
5: Is it possible to forget everything? My whole (laughs) self-identity? Is that too much? Well, I... I... She took notes on what I wanted to forget. Then she hypnotized me, which involved having me count backwards from a hundred and telling me to relax deeper and deeper... And then having me imagine being in a big garden with a stream running through it and she said if i drank from the stream i'd forget my name and where i was and also the name of my friend who'd come with me so i went and drank from the stream and she woke me up
0: five open your eyes all the way back emerging from hypnosis all the way back hi there hi how you doing good feels pretty good doesn't it
5: it wasn't it was pleasant
0: yeah it was fun yeah
5: but I think I can remember. I'm what sorry.
0: And what is it you can remember? What town do you live in?
5: Salt Lake. Uh-huh. Sorry.
0: And what have you been doing today?
5: Um, working on this story.
0: Uh-huh. And what's his name over here?
5: Trent Harris. <laughs> I'm sorry, man. I I I tried. I did. I tried. The next day, I typed amnesia into a search engine on the World Wide Web and got a phone number for the Beckman Institute, a neuroscience center at the University of Illinois. I called up and talked to Rob Altoff, a graduate student, and he told me that the kind of amnesia I was looking for was indeed very rare and that there's some disagreement over whether it even happens at all. He said people do suffer long-term memory loss from severe brain injuries, but that usually these people never recover their memories that the brain doesn't regenerate and he said that the other kind of amnesia where there's no physical trauma is often a matter of the person not wanting to remember for one psychological reason or another and that in these cases it's really difficult to know whether the person is basically just faking it talking to altaf made me wonder if amnesia the kind we see on tv and in the movies where a character gets hit on the head with a coconut, loses his self-identity, then spends the rest of the story rediscovering it or getting bonked on the head by another coconut, whether this is really just a story that we want to be true, that we somehow want to believe in it. The next thing I did was call Diane Bradshaw back and ask her if she knew anyone who could be easily hypnotized and wouldn't mind having amnesia. And she said, yes, he's coming by this afternoon. If he came by around 4, we could ask him. So I went back and met Doug. And Doug was not only willing to be hypnotized, he told me that he'd actually had amnesia 10 years ago in Hawaii.
4: I was on my way from uh, Haleiwa, which is the north shore of Hawaii, and I was on my way into uh, Waikiki, and there was a guy standing on the side of the road that had a towel wrapped around his head and had chicken blood or I don't know what kind of blood, but he pulled over, he kind of waved me over, and I pulled over a Volkswagen van and a bunch of guys came out of the cane field and they just, they beat me. They beat me senseless. They broke almost every rib on the one side, uh, punctured my lung with one of the ribs, punctured my lung, uh, broke my jaw, um, broke my nose, and uh, robbed me. I was out. And they took me to the hospital and I didn't regain consciousness for over 20 days. 20, 21 days was when I finally woke up. So what was it like when you woke up? Um, I was scared. I've never been that scared in my life. You know, I just didn't know what, how I got to where I was or who I was. And then as soon as I started to feel comfortable, just even a little bit comfortable, then I kind of was excited about, I mean, I wanted to know everything. I wanted to know what this was and you know just everything because food was that was really wild when they brought me ice cream I was whoo boy this is good <laughs> like this bring more of this <laughs> so you couldn't remember food you couldn't remember how words even
5: what kinds of things could you remember
4: um, i remember i talked kind of a baby talk kind of thing where i was a broken um, making words my mind would would think the word, but it wouldn't come down to my mouth, and I would, kind of like that, like
5: that. It didn't take long for Diane to hypnotize him. He went down like a rock.
0: In a moment, I'm going to say wide awake. When I do, you will have no memory of who you are or where you are gone completely. Wide awake. Open your eyes. Wide awake. <coughs> <Hey> there. <coughs> What's your name? Where are you? I don't know. You don't know? Mm-hmm. Did you know when you came in here? I don't remember. You don't remember. Yeah.
5: Ask him how it feels to not know who he is.
0: Yeah. So, um, hi, what's your name? I don't know. What's it like not to know? It's black. It's black.
5: Uh how does that blackness make you feel? When you say black, what's the emotion?
4: Puzzled. It's like I'm waiting for the projector to start in a movie. Like it's not on yet.
5: Watching Doug go through this, I couldn't decide whether it was real amnesia or whether it was just a performance of amnesia and that maybe there's no difference. Doug said that getting beat up and losing his memory did help him turn his life around. If that's what he needed, if that's what we all need at some level, then it's no wonder people pretend it's more common than it really
1: is. Scott Carrier lives in Salt Lake City.
3: Well, I done got old Oh!
1: Our program was produced today by Elise Spiegel and myself with Peter Clowney and Nancy Updike, Senior Editor Paul Tuff, Contributing Editors for this show, Margie Rockland, Jack Hitt, and Concierge Sarah Val. Thanks to Elizabeth Meister, who runs our website. Special thanks today to John Connors and the Blues Before Sunrise Radio Network, Mr. Steve Cushing, for musical help. To buy a cassette of this or any of our shows. Call us here at WBEZ in Chicago, 312-832-3380. Well, you know, you can listen to most of our programs for free on the Internet at our website, www.thislife.org. This American Life is distributed by Public Radio International. Funding for our show has been provided by Amazon.com, helping you find your next favorite book with over 13 million titles online at Amazon.com. Other funding comes from the Capital Group Companies, investing for individuals and institutions throughout the world, and sponsor of the American Funds Group of Mutual Funds. And from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, the National Endowment for the Arts, and the Albert A. List Foundation, WBEZ Management Oversight by Tori Malatia. And what exactly is Management Oversight?
2: I added out the midnight wanks, the petty thefts, the unkind words.
1: I'm Ira Glass. Back next week with more stories of this American life.